by the time I was four year old, I started getting into boxing. They wanted to burn the energy off of me. And my dad was the local amateur boxing coach. By the time I was 11, I was able to have my first amateur fight. I was doing good as an amateur. I was top two in England every year. By the time I was 17, I was just itching to turn pro. You know, on my 18th birthday, I turned pro and boxed seven days later. I feel like my career started when I come to Dave Colwell. So that's when I was in me meaningful fights. I feel like that night I was unstoppable. It was my home show. It, I sold the place out. It was Peterborough Arena. I was topping a bill live on Sky Sports for the first time ever. You know, as a kid growing up, that's what dreams are made of. Prove to myself that I was good enough to win that title and do it in the fashion that I did. And then share it with my dad and that belt. And I said, that's for you. That's yours. That was like a big emotional moment. I want to do the same, but with a world title. Boxing is the, probably the most grounding sport in the world. It might look glamorous on TV. The reality is not only hard physically, but it's hard mentally. Welcome back to the CoachCast podcast. My guest today is professional boxer and reigning WBA international featherweight champion. Welcome, Jordan The Thrill Gill. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, no, I'm I'm good. It's a it's an honour to have you, and thank you for for sharing some time with me. I know, like obviously, I keep up to date with your Instagram. You're always training. You've got a busy schedule, so thank you for carving out some time. No problem. The graph never ends, does it? The ne the graph never ends, but uh, we're getting through it. Hundred percent. I made the same joke when I was speaking to Nick. That's my best David Diamante impression right there. Um, <laughs> um, uh, Jordan the Thrill. Where did that nickname come from? The the Thrill. Is it just because it rhymes with Gill? <laughs> I think so. I think so. Um, it kind of just sort of stuck. Somebody once said it. I can't remember even who said it, but somebody said it once, and it sort of stuck. So um, you know, it rhymes. It's a sort of fitting name. Whereas everyone's trying to come and take my head off and kill me, and then I'm trying to bob and weave and duck and dive out the way and sort of pick them off. So it's uh, it's probably a a fitting name yeah definitely boxing can uh can definitely be called a thrill if uh if nothing else um but as uh as you may well know the way i like to start podcasts the way i like to uh introduce yourself is basically take a trip down memory lane let's uh let's talk about baby jordan about your upbringing about your your cultural background all of them sort of things cool yeah well um I was born in a place called Huntingdon and lived all my life in a little place called Chatteris, which is in Cambridgeshire. Uh, it's sort of halfway between Peterborough and Cambridge, um, probably in the middle of nowhere. And a lot of people have never heard of it, but it's quite a uh, agricultural area. There's a lot of farming that goes on. Um, so, yeah, my mum my is English. Um, my dad is Punjabi, is uh, Indian. He was born in Cambridge. Um, both his parents come over from India uh, in the 70s. No, in the 60s, sorry. Um, so, yeah, he was he was sort of born in Cambridge and, and lived there and then come to, to come to Chatteris and met my mum. And then one thing to led to another and then I was born. And <laughs> my sister was born 20 months before me, actually. Um, and, yeah, we sort of just grew up there. And by the time I was four-year-old, I started getting into boxing uh, because my dad... So it was a, was a local boxing coach and uh, that's that. 
Yeah, um, I heard you say in an interview before that um, you were a ball of energy when you were growing up, that they had to basically take you to all these sporting events and, and like swimming before school and and just to sort of sap you of your energy. Is that basically how you got involved in it? Yeah, I had a lot of energy. I was uh, running around uh, when I was about four or five years old. I was causing problems at school. I was playing kiss chase with the boys, the girls, the teachers, the pets. Um, I was a bit of a nightmare. So uh, they they wanted to burn the energy off of me. And uh, they took my mom took me swimming before school. And my dad was the local amateur boxing coach because uh, he, he was an amateur boxer himself, wanted to turn pro, and then really never got the opportunity. So um, he took over training in all the amateur boxes in, in Chatteris. And, uh, yeah, he took me to the gym with him from four years old and sort of just knocked about. And I saw the older kids and I saw how they were training and what they were doing, what was working, what wasn't working. They used to give me digs and beat me up. And uh, by the time I was 11, I was able to have my first amateur fight. I'm guessing because obviously like your dad will be sort of a community figure in that sense then if you like obviously he's like head of uh, the boxing coach at the amateur gyms and things and a lot of the kids will probably know him from that so I'm guessing there was uh, from from the sounds of where, where you, you've grown up it does sound like a very um, English area I'll, I'll put it. Yeah it was, um, it was a really like white dominated area um, but you know everyone was really friendly um, the, the, when I was at school I think there was 1500 kids in school and there's probably six or seven of us that wasn't fully white. Um, so yeah, it was it was white dominant. Um, but you know, everyone was friendly. It was uh, it was all welcome, and it was a, it was a good good place to grow up. A nice part of the world because um, you know if you want anything like tourists, you've got to travel. You want like say you want to go to McDonald's, you've got to travel half an hour to get to McDonald's. So uh, <laughs> grow up in a city, you like probably kids don't think twice of it, and like. Now I'm based up in Sheffield most of the time. Um, everything's on your doorstep living in the city and it's like a luxury that we didn't have growing up. And um, I think it was, it was a good good way to be, a good place to grow up uh, because, you know, so much greenery, so much um, freedom and, and like safety really as well. Yeah, that's uh, that's probably one way of keeping healthy is just make sure there's no McDonald's in the village. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, the reason I wanted to bring that up is because obviously when I've spoke to people so far is, is some people have said I went to like a full white school and it was really hard and it was hard to assimilate and things. But it, it isn't always that case. Do you know what I mean? It's not always like oh, I think sometimes like uh, minorities, myself included, because I'd, I'd got a bit of racism growing up. But I think sometimes it's easier just to say like, oh, I'm, I'm the odd one out and it's it's not my fault and all these things. But there are places in the world and probably more than there aren't because negativity normally gets more press than positivity but I'm guessing there'll be a lot of places like where you grew up where it is white dominated but everyone's so friendly and everyone's so welcoming welcoming yeah that's yeah I think um you're always going to get little um incidents here and there and uh, I don't think anybody growing up um had never been called a name but just because we are probably different they chose that certain name to call us but it is what it is isn't it um if i was really fat they would have called me fatty uh <laughs> if i was uh, you know ginger ginger kids get all oh, your ginger nut or um carrot top or something like that and you know kids will be kids and, and people will be people but i just think there's good and bad in everybody and um i think there's more good people um, especially where I grew up, but probably in the world, um, then there is bad people. And I think if 
if we treat everybody how we want to be treated, then I think the world would be a better place. 100%, that's it. But unfortunately, especially now when you'll probably know with social media and things, of obviously being in the limelight yourself, I think nowadays it's very easy to, uh, and, and being a professional boxer, this probably applies to you more than anything. It's very easy to say something with no repercussions. Like if someone said something to you in the street, you wouldn't want to get punched in the face by a professional boxer, do you know what I mean? But obviously nobody's going to do that with a fake profile on the internet. Yeah, that's it. We become easy targets. And uh, I don't know what goes on in these people's lives where they think they it, it makes them feel better to sort of have a crack at us or call us names or, or you know, speak badly of us. But, you know, at the same time, what can we do? Um, it is what it is. I think in a world we live in now, it's so like media and Toria is so, so um, social media uh, wide, like it, it's everywhere. You can't, there's no escaping it. And I think everybody, because of social media, everybody wants sort of attention. And it seems to be people are doing more and more extreme things to get the, the, this attention. So like you see these YouTubers just doing stupid things and, and saying outrageous stuff because it gets views and the the bar gets raised every time so somebody has to outdo the last person's outrageous comment and then it just spirals and spirals and before you know it we're living in a world full of mad people and uh, they're saying and doing mad things and we're sometimes at some point um someone is going to get a big reality check and uh you can see it all coming but 100 percent. especially i think the youtuber that you're in, like talking about is jake paul because uh, he's the one that's making noise and boxing especially and um i've spoken about this on the podcast previously with um uh, an art teacher she's like in her 40s she didn't know anything about the poor brothers and but we were talking about social media and the big brother logan who who fought floyd a few years ago i don't know if you're aware of the thing that happened in japan have you heard about that was it when Floyd uh, did an exhibition there? No, no, the, the YouTuber. So Logan, um, this was when his numbers were increasing. He's got lots of yes men around him. And it's that thing that you're saying that he was doing some more fucked up shit every single video because the views are increasing and he had to push himself further and further. Oh, is, that when, is that when he went into the forest? Yeah, the suicide forest. And th that's the sort of thing where I think people will get a reality check because after that, it was very much like, right, hands off him, his sort of... And he's obviously had to go back and reflect and rebuild and all these things, but... It's absolutely crazy that someone can get to a point in their own reality where they think that's acceptable. And I yeah. think that's where, like, social media and everything everything sort of spirals out of control when people's own reality becomes you know distorted and sometimes you know you need a, you do need a big reality check and hopefully at that point you got it i don't know too much about these poor brothers or i don't really know too much about the big figureheads in in social media but or in in, in the media but all i know what's right and wrong and that was definitely wrong 100% yeah I think when it comes because social media views now are money and if you've got a team of businessmen around you who are thinking this will be good for views which equals we get paid then they're not going to say no and they'll let the the guy take the fall for it and obviously they can take money obviously I think that's a bit of speculation on my part as well because you don't know what's going on behind the scenes and things but it did seem like that sort of was what happened but for yourself it's probably a lot easier to be grounded when you get punched in the face when you go into training and, and things like this so I'm guessing you, you can't really take any days off uh in that sense 
No, that's it. I think uh, boxing is the, probably the most grounding sport in the world and uh, it might look glamorous on TV and you might get all the fanfare when you do fight or when you're training. People come want to come watch and want to know who you're fighting and want to know uh, where they can get tickets and want your <laughs> team T-shirts and stuff like that and want a photo. But the reality is harsh. It's a harsh reality of the fact that you are going to the gym every day. You are slogging it out. You are having to get up early and, and eat spinach uh, like Popeye. And, uh, you know, it's a very hard way to make a living. It's not only hard physically sport, but it's hard mentally. And it's hard in a business sense to, to get to where you need to get to for the financial gains. Um, so, so sort of going back to your dad, he, he seems to be like the again the figurehead in this in, in your story as well of obviously getting into boxing so as you mentioned there um i think you had like around 93 amateur fights uh yeah. is what i've heard yeah, yeah? okay done my research before this you see <laughs> and um you got into it at the age of four and he was training you at the amateur gym and then at around the age of 11 is when he stuck you in your first pro fight uh, amateur fight sorry yeah that's right it would have been a, a bit excessive to truck you in a pro fight at 11. <laughs> I've had a hard time. Yeah, exactly. So what was uh, Do you remember any of that stuff? Like, do you remember being nervous before amateur fights or anything? Or was it just a bit of like, we'll give this a blast? Um, it was more fun for me. Um, I was the one that like, a lot of people look at um, any sportsman with or like children playing sport where their dad's their coach and expect the dad to be pushing them into it or... Um, being very harsh with them or, or dragging them to the gym when they don't want to go and it was actually the opposite with me I was dragging my dad to the gym I was like come on then let's do another round or <laughs> give me that fight or, or let's see if we can beat this guy up and stuff like that so um, I was always very keen so when it come around to my first amateur fight I was not nervous at all I didn't really know what to expect um, I fought a kid that had probably five or six fights on his home show in Bedford um on a monday night and i was uh it was in fact it was the 5th of october 2005 um and i boxed him on a monday night i got home about two o'clock in the morning i remember turning up at school on a tuesday i won i beat him and uh i thought i was a hero and then i walked into school and i said oh good news you'll be good at this cross country day so i had about three hours sleep and uh, i had to run the cross country at school so it was a nightmare but yeah, I wasn't really nervous for my first fight. I was nervous for um, probably my second fight because in your first fight, you don't really know what to expect. Um, you've been to amateur shows before and you've seen other people do it, but you've never been there and done it yourself. So after my first fight, I sort of knew what was coming. I knew it was going to be hard. So in my second fight, I was nervous, but you know, not so much um, as it went down the line. I was, I was sort of, I was, I was doing good as an amateur. I was top two in England every year. Um, I was putting in good performance. I was boxing for England, uh, beating you know world champions and, and and British champions all the time. So every time I had a fight on a club show, there was no one that really wanted to fight me. So I was having to fight older guys. I was having to fight heavier guys, um, guys that was way more experienced than me. And that's the way you you get experience yourself. And then sort of by the time I was seventeen, I was just itching to turn pro. And that's when it, it finally come. You know, on my eighteenth birthday, I turned pro. And box seven days later. You, are you allowed to turn pro before eighteen in this country? I'm not aware. No, of you. Right, okay. No. You, so you had to, to wait 18. for that birthday, right? 
Yeah, I did. Yeah, I think in Ireland, I'm not sure if it's changed. In Ireland, you used to be able to be 17, but it might be 18 now. But I know, like in Mexico and places like that, it's 15. Yeah, yeah. You hear like people like Ryan Garcia, Devin Haney, and people like that have obviously uh, and Canelo and things have have been professional for a lot longer. I think a lot of them went to like um, Mexico to have a few pro fights before actually like being allowed to box in in America. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, no, it's not. It's like some fucking rocky shit that is. You know, <laughs> I would travel across the border just to have a couple of fights. Um, but you were obviously like a really decorated amateur, as you just mentioned there. So I've got like seven national finals here, won ABAs, NACYPs, and obviously box for England in them seven years. And as you say, you turned professional relatively early. But um, a question when you were speaking there that I popped into my head was of so featherweight is nine stone, isn't it? But obviously. Yeah. When you were like 11 to 17, you're obviously growing, so you probably would have boxed like um, smaller weights than that as well. Um, is, is is it hard to be at the smaller weight category when you're like growing up because you're always going to be against people who were sort of still filling out the frame and always going to be sort of bigger than you, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's funny. It's funny. Um... A lot of kids sort of kill themselves to make the weight so they can be the biggest they could for the weight. And you mm. see it time and time again. And also, like, when you grow it, everybody sort of grows in different stages. So um, you see some kids with complete the opposite body shapes to others. So you might see two kids that are, like, 60 kilos, and one of them would be, like, five foot four, and the other one could be, like, six foot, just because <laughs> people's bodies are so different, aren't yeah. they? And, and, and you grow at different stages, and you fill out different stages. But... For me, um, I never even, I never knew anything about nutrition. I never dieted ever when I was amateur. Um, probably only the last sort of year that I was amateur. I just sort of ate what I wanted, trained hard, and I, whatever I turned up, whatever I weighed, I turned up at. So my first two years in the championships, I was 52 kilos, which is about, I don't know, probably about eight stone. Um, and then after, so from the age of 13 onwards, that was when I went up to, I went from 52 kilos to 60 kilos, which is like nine and a half stone, nine six that is. So I boxed at 13 at nine six, and now I box at nine stone. So yeah. I box heavier when I was when I was 13 than I do now. So it's like, it's hard for people to wrap their head around, but then so I maintained that weight at 60 kilos from 13 all the way up until I turned pro. And then like by the time I was turning pro in the championships, I'd look for all the weight divisions in my year group and I'd say everybody in the final probably eight out of ten of them I'd box in previous years just because they've grown and I've stayed the same way um so like now there's a guy on GB who's uh, called George Crotty and he's a super middleweight and I've, I remember I had like a trilogy with him when I was amateur but right down at the lower weights it is crazy. Like, um, one of the first boxers that I was able to speak to was uh, Ender Bussy. I'm not sure if you're yeah. familiar with him. Yeah. And um, when we were talking about his amateur career, he was like, he beat Daniel Dubois in <laughs> in amateurs. Now I was like, hey, you must you must be pulling my leg here. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're you're uh, I think he's a welterweight. He fights at. Yeah. You know what I mean? And he's he's beaten a guy who in the amateurs would have been super heavyweight by the end of it. And obviously, like, as a heavyweight now, I'm thinking, hey, what the fuck's going on here? You must be chatting shit or something. He was like, yeah. obviously, when you, you don't think of Daniel Dubois as, like, a kid, obviously, you just think of him as he is now. Yeah, it's a nice name to have in your record there. So when you see him yeah. fighting for, like, British Super Commonwealth title or whatever, and he's a massive heavyweight, six foot odd, 
And you can say, ah, oh, beat him. And yeah. I'm like, <laughs> and he's like, well, it was a 10 and a half stone, wet through. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And to be fair, he did flex on that podcast as well. It was a, it was a, a proud achievement for him. And it, rightly so, because obviously Daniel went on to do some really, really cool things. Um, when you turned professional, I was, I was, as I was saying to you, I recently spoke to Nick Webb, and he was saying, and asked him a similar thing of, uh, did he feel like excited or nervous in his amateur um, debut? And he, he, like yourself, he was like, you didn't really know what to expect, and um, and he didn't really feel nervous. It was just more just going with the flow. But what was the difference like from your pro debut? Because obviously that's when. You, there's a bit more weight you've you sort of accomplished as an amateur there's a bit more expectation there's a bit more pressure were you a lot more nervous for that could you feel any of the pressures with, with uh, your professional debut um I did um but not as much as people would have thought I don't think because uh there's extra pressure there because you've got a lot of people there to see you um it's the first sort of time that you're a professional you you want to impress everybody the promoters are there the tv companies are there you're expected to do a job and i think part of the reason why i didn't feel as nervous is because you know when i first turned pro i was fighting people that you know i probably would have beat when i was 14 um and that's no disrespect to them but i was i was sort of held back for way too long i was boxed a lot of meaningless fights that i didn't really want to be in um, a lot of fighters that i boxed with journey when, when i was coming through and it's only since I went to sort of went to Dave Colwell that I've been in real good quality fights and and winning these championship fights. Yeah, that was a point that I was going to make um, a, a bit later on because obviously I was watching a, a lot of your fights recently in the lead up to this, and um, it did seem like um, when you switched from the Ingle Gym to the Coldwell Gym, that's sort of when you you did sort of crack on a lot more, and I think that's what. Um, not just like obviously not just myself saying this, but yourself saying this, and a lot of people like in the boxing industry, quote unquote, were were saying that at the time as well. I think during that fight with um uh the the one for the WBA um yeah title the first time in in, in Peterborough, and I yeah. think that was mentioned. I was I was literally just watching that twenty minutes before we started, so I just get my myself amped up, and they were mentioning that in there as well. Was that a massive difference for you when you switched over to Dave then? Yeah, it was huge. It was like I had a purpose. For me now, I look back and that feels like a completely different lifetime. That feels like a different career. I feel like my career started when I come to Dave Colwell. And uh, cause that's when I was in meaningful fights. Um, I got two fights. I hadn't boxed for 18 months before I went to Dave. So I went to Dave and I got two fights in quick succession. And I was straight in, straight in with... Uh, Jason Cullinan, so I'd not boxed past six rounds. I'd never sparred more than eight rounds. And um, I did a 10-rounder with Jason Cullinan, who's now the current European champion. So um, that was at the time was a British title eliminator, and I've come through that. Um, I, I, I beat him quite well, dropped him twice. So for me, that was the start of big things. And once I got that fight, then things started moving very quickly. And uh, Dave's the man that made it happen, because before that, it was like... I had no purpose. I wanted to these big fights, but they just weren't coming, um, and no fights were coming at that stage. So I was uh, I was sitting around twiddling my thumbs and training every day, going to the gym and grafting and grafting for no uh, no reward. Is um you you didn't sign with Matchroom until that point either, did you? Or did, were you with Matchroom beforehand as well? No, I didn't sign with Matchroom until I won the Commonwealth title um, against Ryan Doyle. 
and having someone like Dave obviously probably would have helped that because a lot of his fighters have been with Matchroom before and then when you're with a promotional outfit it is easier to get these run outs all the time yeah definitely I think um, Dave's got a very good relationship with Eddie Hearn um, who's head of Matchroom um, I wouldn't have got the shot of the Commonwealth title if it weren't for Dave so you know he's got the right connections he gave me, uh, got me the shot against Ryan Doyle for Commonwealth and that was down to me to, to win it and because I did a good job and I stopped him um, that's when Matchroom got interested and got involved. And, um, you know, they, they, they still, when you sign with them, they don't just give you runouts here, there and everywhere. They, they want you in good quality fights because, you know, it's costing them money. Um, and they don't want to invest in fighters that aren't going to, you know, have the potential to reach the top. So it's good to be with a promotional outfit, yeah. Um, and these fights are going to come thick and fast now. Like, my next fight's going to be the European title, which is uh, which is awesome for me, and then hopefully push on uh, end of this year or early next year and get a world title shot. Yeah, that would be that would be really really good. I I, I don't know like um, how to say this without sounding really too much fanboyish but I'm a massive Eddie Hearn fan do you know what I mean so for me it's when I get to speak to like people like yourself and things I always want to try to like find out as much as I can behind the scenes of boxing just obviously being a boxing fan in general and what what do you think of uh, this I feel like this will probably be beneficial to you is the signing with DAZN because now you get a fight not just here I've seen that obviously you fought on an Italy show um, uh, recently and that's obviously through Matchroom and DAZN in there and um, obviously, fight camp was the Respalotti fight as well. And um, although obviously they weren't with the zone at that point, like in America and things, it's all broadcasted there. So you're still getting that cash injection, which helps the fighters uh, like yourself get out a bit more frequently. Um, what do you think of all of that sort of um, move? I guess it's very interesting because um, obviously Eddie had a very good thing with Sky. Um, they had a very solid relationship over the years. And Sky did a good job in broadcasting, but basically the zone have come in with all this money, um, and it's they've basically made a uh, an offer that he couldn't refuse, like <laughs> the Godfather. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's gonna allow Eddie, um, who's now started to take control of the whole uh, media production and everything, sort of mould it and monopolise it in a way to be able to put out what he wants to put out. He can make the fights that he wants to make because the budget's big. There's, um, if, if two world champions are asking for um, an extra 100 grand on their top of their purse to, to make that fight, then he's got the money in, in the bank to, to pay it, where Sky might, might have said, oh, do you know what, that's a bit too much. The zone will be like throwing money, money at it. And for the boxers, that's good. Well, not only because there's more money in the pot, but because there's going to be more broadcasters and more competition between the promoters. So, you know, the, the game is going to be raised again. So there's going to be more opportunities, more shows, more um, opportunities to box around the world. Is going to be uh, bigger fights being made. And it can only be good, I think. Um, but time will tell. And plenty of promoters or any in any sport of taken big risks and, and it failed but I think that Eddie has got such a drive and such um, you know a passion for it I can't see it failing because I think anything that he'll eat with Matchroom that's his that's his family business and he'll do anything to, to see it strive and, uh, and survive so 
if he if he had any doubt that this zone deal would not work, then I don't think he would have gone for it, and uh, think it's going to be an exciting time ahead. Hundred percent. Like um, obviously, fight camp's coming up again in a in a couple of weeks. Obviously, you fought in the last one, but this one's uh, going to be the first ones on the zone and things as well. So it's going to be really interesting. And, and I think the best thing on the fan side of it, like for myself, is it's two quid. It's one ninety nine. Do you know what I mean? It's 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 uh, it's obviously cheap for us at the moment. Obviously, that price yeah, will probably go up. Yeah, yeah. By the end of fight camp, I'm pretty sure he's already said at the end of fight camp it's going up before the um, Warrington Lava rematch. Um, right. Is is that like a show that you could potentially be on? I know you just mentioned the European title shot there. Um, is that something coming up? Because I had the name written down. I'm not sure if this is correct or I've just seen this on a dodgy website, but Anthony Gargo is, I don't know if I'm... Yeah, Anthony Gargo. Uh, they're, they're in private negotiations at the moment. So the EBU may be mandatory for that title. Um, so if um, the fight couldn't get agreed, it would have gone to Perspis. But, you know, it's, the fight's been agreed. Um, there was talks of it going on the Josh Warrington undercard, but I think the from what I've heard now they're going to be doing it in Spain. So the the, the champion is Anthony Gajo. He's um he's Spanish. He fights in Spain a lot, and uh, you know he's a champion. So I've got to go to the champion's backyard and and take that belt away from him. So that's going to be probably a week or two after the Josh Warrington card. I know they're just sorting the dates out now, so uh, it's going to be very exciting and uh, a good little Spanish trip. Have you done your research on him? Have you have you figured out what uh, how to beat him? I'm guessing you and you and David probably already conjured up a master plan. No, I'll do it later. I'll do it later. <laughs> a bit closer to the fight when it's is is that hard for like when a fight is getting talked about and it's not actually finalized to sort of get ahead of yourself? Or do you do you wait until like right sign seal delivered? Now I'm gonna start and focus on this guy, and in the meantime I'll just prepare myself for whatever comes. Yeah, I think what what you have to do is sort of put yourself in a position where you're just improving day to day on yourself and making sure sure that you're the best that you can possibly be because it's it's all well and good preparing for one style but at the same time they're preparing for you and they're watching you so they might come into the ring and uh fight completely different to how you've ever watched them fight and obviously everyone has habits and everyone has sort of little things that you can you pick up on but when they're in there with you, I always find it's completely different to when they fight everyone else. I, I don't allow them to do what they normally do or or uh, force them to do something completely different. So I tend to make sure that I'm the best that I can be and then sort of just be able to deal with it quickly when it, when it happens and unfolds in front of me. Yeah, 100%. I think, again, that's similar sort of to what Nick was saying, is, uh, is they've never been in the ring with him. And that's the way that he sort of mentally prepares himself beforehand, like of not not tailoring him to yourself too much to the opponent, but was thinking that they've never been in the ring with somebody like him. And obviously, you, you've said the sort of same. It's it's fascinating because as I, I keep on saying, like from the outside looking in, it seems like sometimes um, fighters obviously tailor themselves specifically to different opponents, and and maybe it's like some fighters do it and some fighters like to stay themselves. Um, We've sort of like jumped towards the end because we're pretty much at present day, but let's rewind it a bit more and go back to the, the pro um, sort of journey. And 26 and 1 now, and uh, the first sort of 
well, the Commonwealth title against Ryan Doyle was uh, um, 23, I think, 23 fights in-ish, or 24 fights in. Yeah. And um, that was a seventh round TKO. What was, uh, that, that's sort of like the first sort of decent step up, would you say? Um, I think probably the first major step up was when I boxed Jason Cunningham for the, in a British title eliminator. I think that was, um, I had one fight in between that and the Doyle fight. So, um, yeah, that was my first major step up because under the circumstances, like I'd, I'd had two fights to, to get a bit of momentum, uh, before that fight, but before that previously I hadn't boxed for 18 months. Um, I, I was young. Um, I think I'd had 18 or 19 fights. Um, it was my first time going the distance, going 10 rounds. I'd never gone past six before. I'd never been in a, with a championship fire. The guy was, you know, at the time, two-time Commonwealth champion. And now he's the current European champion. So he's actually achieved in his last fight by beating Gamal Yafai what I want to achieve in my next fight. So at the time, you know, it was a very hard fight. He's a very experienced fighter. Um, he, he was a former senior, senior ABA champion as well. So... It was a tough fight. Um, so that was my first major step up. And, um, you know, I answered a lot of questions that night. And then I had a, another tick over fight um, on the undercard of Hay versus Bellew 2. Um, and then I was straight in in the, in the with uh, Ryan Doyle for the Commonwealth title. So, you know, that was that was a major step up. He just knocked out Bellotti in, in fact, the fashion who was, you know, Eddie's favourite featherweight at the time. Um, so he was, he had the momentum, he was a hot ticket at the time. And for me to go in and, and just obliterate him like I did, do a proper, you know, job on him, just box his head off and broke, broke him up and stopped him. I really announced myself that night. And uh, that's the sort of uh, fights and performances that I want to um, build on and, and continue doing. So from straight from there, I went in with, uh, you know, a dangerous Mexican, Emmanuel Dominguez, and that was that was a, another step up in the case where he's a good international fighter. He's a tough Mexican. Um, he had uh, he's he's had a lot of fights and and good experience. He had range. Uh, you know, he went like nine or ten rounds with uh, Emmanuel Navarrete. Um, and the added pressure I had was it was my home show. I sold the place out. It was Peterborough Arena. I sold a thousand tickets personally. Everyone that was there to see me, I was topping a bill live on Sky Sports for the first time ever. And for me, you know, as a kid growing up, that's what dreams are made of. And that added to the excitement, added to the pressure, but at the same time, it added to the performance because I feel like that night I was unstoppable. I, I would would not have been beat that night at all. Oh, that's a fight that I was gonna. Uh, I wanted to ask a few questions about because, as you mentioned there, like. It's uh, it's in your hometown, Sky Sports headline act for for WA, WBA international featherweight title, and you definitely like answered every question, and you can see the grin on your face when you're talking about it. You obviously reminisce like very fondly about it, and uh, it, it, one of the questions I wanted to ask is, can you appreciate moments like that when you are striving to sort of eclipse them, if that makes sense? Like, it is obviously going to have a special place in your heart but obviously you still want to progress way further than that. So can you sort of reminisce and like, or, or is that, do you, in your mind, is that complacency if you think about it too much? Uh, no, I can reminisce now. Uh, now it's done. Mm. Uh, I wish, it's like anything at the time, I feel like everything I do 
is like a big thing to everybody else, but to me it's not. And at the time, every every step that I take, I sort of take it all into my stride. And I don't think about what I'm doing or how big the occasion is or how what big thing it is. When really, when I look back, that was massive. Um, and I didn't actually appreciate it. You know, when, even when I won the project, when I won uh, the fight against Jason Cameron, when I won uh, the WBA International Team, I look back and I think, wow, I, that was a big moment. I should have really took my time and enjoyed it a bit more. But, you know, when you're in that moment, you've got, you've got one sole focus and that's to win the fight and that's to perform to the best of your ability. And that's what I did. So, you know, I never really fully appreciated, but now I look back, I really do. And it doesn't make me um, complacent because now it just drives me more to think I would love to get back to that position where I am headlining in Peterborough because now it's a different story where I think I wouldn't just sell 1,000 tickets personally. I think I'd sell out the whole stadium. And if anything, you could probably go to the football ground, especially if I had a European or world title fight. So it's a big motivation. It's uh, something that I'd love to do. And it's something that I strive to to get back to Peterborough Arena or back to fighting in Peterborough, whether it's at the arena or the, the Western home, Western home, home ground where the Peterborough, um, the posh play. That's uh, that's something that's always quite cool. Like obviously, you've seen like Tony Bell, you go to Goodison and have his night against Macabu, and there was talks up here. Like I'm from Newcastle, and uh, there was talks up here that Lewis Fitzsimmons might have been going to St James's Park, but I think yeah. his past few fights have sort of like um, put that on ice for now. Uh, hopefully, he can like obviously get back uh, to that point where hopefully he does have a fight there because it would be like electric and aesthetic. Like there is something special about just having them in football stadiums. I think it's, obviously it's a larger capacity as well. But um, them sort of nice just stand out a lot, lot more. Um, and obviously uh, for for the for the fighters themselves, like Lewis Ritson's a massive Newcastle fan. I think anyone who likes sport is normally a Newcastle United fan if they're born in Newcastle. Um, and and for yourself, obviously Peterborough would be quite special as well. I wanted to ask um, a specific moment in that fight where, obviously as a fighter, how much does the the crowd get to you? Because there was. The second round on the bell, pretty much. A few seconds beforehand, you'd already sort of rocked him. And on the bell, you hit him with a flush shot. He's like wobbling way back to his corner. And you can hear the crowd is like ecstatic. They're, they're erupting. Now, you haven't got him out of there yet. You still need to go there. And obviously the next round you did, and the crowd goes even wilder then. But how much like how much control do you have to have in that moment? Because you, you showed like you didn't rush in at any point. You... You dismantled him really like a, a nice pace, but how much like sort of control and how much how much like do you have to tempt yourself for that? Uh, yeah, you have to have a lot of control, but at the end of the day, it's what we train to do, isn't it? So I feel like when it's like I said before, when everyone's watching, it's a big thing, but to mm. us, it's like you just take it and you try and you, you sort of have to you have to have control because. They, I did get him out in the next round. I did stop him, but there's every chance that he could have recovered because he's a tough Mexican. He could have recovered and, you know, carried on till the 12th round. Um, you never really know these guys, so you have to remain uh, composed. But at the same time, when I was going back to that corner, I remember hitting him. And, and to be honest, I didn't even look at him. I knew I hurt him with that shot, but I didn't even look at him. You can see it on the camera where he was he rocked and sort of stumbled back to his corner, but I was focused on getting back to my stool making sure that I've got my, my 60 seconds rest. But at the same time, the the roar of the crowd when that happened, knew he was rocked. 
um, but that energy sort of just soaks into your body uh, from the crowd. And it's, I don't know, it's hard to explain, but you, as when you're in that position, you, you sort of soak that energy up from the crowd and, and it sort of adds to you. Um, it adds to your strength and, and sort of power. You think there's, there's no stopping me tonight. And that's, that's how it feels. Like an extra burst of energy, sort of like that. You can you absorb it in. Yeah, it's like a, a superpower. Yeah, I can imagine. Like, and I, to be fair, I didn't even notice that. Like, and as you say, you were walking back. I think Dave was probably looking at him more than yourself because I remember Dave was just looking at him wobbling to the corner, and uh, and obviously in the next uh, next round you sort of uh, finished it basically. And then when you get that announcement. As you sort of alluded to there, you don't really think of anything in the moment, but surely when someone's like raising your arm and putting a belt around your waist, you can sort of look and, and sort of appreciate that moment. I know you had like a really um, heartwarming embrace with your dad afterwards and, and like in the ring where it was like you, you're hugging all your team, but there was a bit more of a special moment between you and your dad there. Is, are there things that you soak in at the time or is it, is it still just a blur because all the adrenaline's in there? Yeah, I think... Um... It's different points at different after different fights. There's sort of um, the emotion hits you because nine times out of ten, the journey to get to that fight is a very hard one. So like every camp is tough. So when it's done and that that feeling of relief, where obviously all through the camp you look forward to the fight, but you still got pressure on you to make sure it goes well. You you really want it to go well, but when it's done and you've won that title you've got the, your hands raised that sense of relief is like no other and then it sometimes it hits you in the ring sometimes it hits you in the chamber but it's like a, a weight's been lifted off your shoulder because you've done it and and you've achieved the goal that you set out to do me when i won the commonwealth title um against ryan doyle that was for me a massive moment because I'd had all these meaningless fights and this was the first time, apart from Jace Cannon, that I was going to fight somebody who was, you know, it was a really big title, Commonwealth title, was a massive title for me to win, really prestigious, you know, a lot of good fighters have had it throughout the years and after all their meaningless fights, if I'd have got to that point and not won that fight, that for me would be like, right, I'm not good enough, I need to stop um, and for me to prove that to myself, because obviously all, all, all your life, you're going to have people say, oh, you're not good enough, you can't do this, you, 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 you might as well pack up, this and that. For me to prove to myself that I was good enough to win that title and do it in the fashion that I did, and then share it with my dad as well, because from four years old, he'd put all his time and energy into making me as good as I am and, and, and um, struggling to put me in, in the right gyms or struggling to... Um, getting this far in and, and you know working is nuts off to have the money to um, get a train ticket for me to come up to the sort of train and stuff like that for me to look at him in that room and give him that belt and I said that's for you that's yours that was like a big emotional moment of him um, there's very rarely a moment in my life that you can you can really say you know what I've, I've done it here I've, I've, given, I've achieved something that no one will ever be able to take away from me and I want to give it to my dad because you know without him I wouldn't be there and I think you know in that moment he really appreciated it and you know it was a very emotional time but I want to do the same but with a world title.
Hundred percent. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the beautiful things about sport in general is them them emotional moments that just come out and uh, and and you can't really help it sort of thing all the time and the the energy that obviously you and your dad have spent in the gym and and the pride that he must have from coaching you at four years old all the way to uh, a, like a big fucking title. Do you know what I mean? Like in a in your home fucking stadium and a packed out crowd. It's obviously really like a an emotional time. You've mentioned world title a few times there as well. And as a as I sort of like alluded to before is a, a few of the guests that we've had on, well pretty much all the boxers we've had on are Indian, except for Nick obviously in the last one. And um a lot of their goals are to be the first uh world champion of Indian heritage. And and it seems to be like a like a nice little new crop basically of of sort of and, and but in terms of the professional game, I think it is safe to say that you're the furthest in your career and maybe the closest to that goal. Is that something that you have ever been aware of? If like somebody's told you like, you know, if you win a world title, you'd be the first one like ever Indian heritage to do so. Um no, do you know what? No one's ever said that to me. And uh I've never really thought about it. I just think all I think about is the world title and if I can win that. And uh, not only for me, not only for my dad, but for Dave, who's put all the time and effort into me as well. You know, we have very hard uh, days where things don't go right and he has to sit, sit and take his time and explain things to me. And, you know, as in, like boxing is uh, individual sport where there's not a team, like it's not a team sport, but it still have a team environment. So like the amount of time that Dave puts into me, the amount of time that dad put into me over the years, um, my strength conditioning coach Danny Wilson, um, Alan Ruddock, um, my nutritionist Scott Robinson. We're like a big team. We're a big family. And for me, it, it wouldn't be an achievement for me. It'd be an achievement for everyone. And uh, for me to be able to give back to my to, to my dad, to to Dave, especially who's who's made me the fighter that I am now, um, would be awesome. So. Yes, yeah, it's, it's not something that I think about being from Indian heritage. I just like to to win it, and then then somebody tell me that oh, you're the first Indian to do it. So uh, yeah, I'd I'd love to do it, and um, I think that I've got every chance of doing it, and I'm doing everything in my power to make sure that I'm in the best position to to take that title and uh, bring it home. Hundred percent. Well, when that person afterwards tells you, or you just have to remember me telling you first, isn't it? <laughs> I'm hoping you're gonna be the one there that says, "Yeah, do you know what?" Yeah, yeah. I'll uh, uh, when when you've got your world title fight, I'll buy, I'll come down buy a ticket. I'll be like in the crowd, Jordan. Remember me? We did that podcast. Yeah, you're the first Indian uh, world champ now. <laughs> but um, because it, it is one of them things where like I've spoken before um to to say like Gaz and shout out to Gaz from Blue Corner Boxing for helping sort this out this podcast as well of like the the crop of Indians coming through obviously it's we've never really been in this sport as as big as say um like Pakistanis Indian heritage fighters haven't really been there as as Amir Khan and Prince Nassim but it seems like we're pushing on that door and and sometimes it takes and I know obviously like Commonwealth titles are impressive into uh, like international titles are impressive but sometimes it does take that world championship status to sort of propel that next generation to be like look actually if there's a parent that's thinking oh maybe we don't want our Indian kid to be in boxing someone to look up to as a world champion that comes from a similar background to yourself so that who looks like you can sort of make it a bit more achievable and spark that inspiration into the next generation no pressure though no pressure (laughs) it could happen couldn't it It could happen that the fact where if, if I do become world champion or when I do become world champion 
Um, I will be a positive role model. I feel like I'm not going to be going around swearing and, and uh, you know, shouting at people. I'm going to be respectful the way I am. I'm just going to be myself and, and be polite and try to be as articulate as possible. And, and hopefully, you know, children's parents will see that. And if they're, you know, from the same heritage as me or if they're half Polish or, or half uh, Dominican Republic, Republic, whatever they might look. So, you know what, he's half class or he... he he's uh mixed mixed race and he can do it um well he's a polite young man and he can win a world title i think maybe this is a good thing for for me to put my son or daughter in to teach them discipline and um you know that way we might get more people in the sport i see when nasim hamid uh won the world title and first come along the there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Yemenis flocking to Sheffield to the Winkerbank gym to to train and be like Nassim Ahmed. So, you know, there's every possibility that we could inspire a generation. But even if you don't inspire a whole generation, you could make an impact on one person's life and, you know, that could make all the difference in their life. And for me that that'd be awesome. hundred percent. And and something that I didn't actually realise literally until today, um, was that Dave's actually from India as well. Like he's he's from Indian heritage. Am I have I read that correctly? He's from Calcutta. Yeah, I believe he, I believe he was born in Calcutta. Um, so yeah, we done a little piece, uh, an interview for uh, the Indian Express. Yeah, uh, that's that's the article that I read. So yeah, yeah, that was it. That's right. Yeah. So I was there um, when we was interviewed. We was interviewed together, in fact, uh, for that. So no, it was interesting to hear Dave speak a little bit about it. So obviously, I don't know too much about Dave's um, story in that sense. So maybe you'd have to get him on the podcast and talk to talk to him in that in that way. So you know, it's it's good. So we might be the first um, world champion trainer and fighter team to win a world title. On. And I think that might be a, a long-standing uh, record when it happens. Hundred percent, yeah. It would be it would be really interesting because obviously, um, like there's there's one point, however million people, a billion people in India, and the, the, obviously the Indian Express got in touch and did that article, and I, I didn't even know that beforehand. But um, I'd love to have Dave Caldwell on, and obviously since you train with him all the time, maybe you can put a win in wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I might put in a good word for you later. <laughs> yeah, I know he gets about 100 requests a day. I can imagine. I'll, um, I will put, I'll tell him that I've done one with you and I'll put him onto you. Uh, oh, and tell him to, to read the message request. Yeah, definitely. I'll slide into the DMs after this one. <laughs> um, after that, um, that like incredible night in Peterborough, you wanted to get back out really quickly. And um, as you said, on, on the Peterborough night, you sold over a thousand tickets and and there's like, I'm guessing there was an element of you didn't want to let your fans down because on on your first title defence, was it it was it was food poisoning on the day of? Yeah, I was, I was really unwell um, that night. So I'd boxed uh, 10 weeks before and then had a couple of weeks off and got straight back into camp and they said I was an opportunity to fight um, in May, early May. Um, against another Mexican and I was like yeah cool uh, I want to fight um so I trained I trained hard got down to the weight and uh, made the weight but after the weighing you know the, the food that I was eating it wasn't sort of absorbing into my body so like, I looked big I put the weight back on but it was all like there was water under my skin like it, it, I was just watering like the food wasn't actually absorbing so 
Like I was just sort of getting rid of the food and the, the, the water wasn't sitting right in my body. And, you know, I, I learned a lesson that day, you know, I was on the toilet all day um, fight, uh, before the fight and I didn't want to let anyone down. Like you said, I'd, I'd had all these unmeanless fights. I'd finally got my big break and I don't want to pull out and let down the promoter, the fans, the TV. I was topping the bill again um, in Nottingham that time. So I didn't want to let anyone down. I thought, you know what, I'm good. I got a bit carried away with the hype. I thought, I'm too good. I can't get beat. Uh, this guy can't beat me. I'll be all right. Once I'm in there, I'll be fine. That's what I was telling myself. Once I'm in there, I'll be fine. I'll just put it back, back in my mind. And as soon as I got in that ring, or even warming up on the pads, my timing was all off. I didn't feel myself. I didn't feel great. And then I was boxing the first round. I was getting caught with shots that I shouldn't have, well, I would never get caught with. And then I got hit with a body shot. And I never, ever, in my life, I've never been dropped with a headshot. And I've been dropped probably twice in sparring in my whole life with body shots. And he hit me with a body shot in that fight. And there was no resilience to it whatsoever. And I had no, I had no resilience um, from body shots. And it was like, I'd never been in that situation before. And I was like, what do I do? Um, so, you know, I tried my hardest to win that fight. And, you know, I got dropped, kept getting up, and got dropped, kept getting up. I was I had one round where I got back to my boxing, tried being a bit smart, and I was, I was won the round. But at the end of the day, you know, I didn't have the resilience in my body to, to hold them shots. And um, I was, I'd lost three to eight rounds. And, you know, I probably won a couple of rounds and, and I was definitely down on points. But there was a couple of rounds left and Dave just pulled me out the corner and I was like, oh no, let me finish the fight at least. But, you know, he probably done the right thing because I wasn't going to win that fight. Um, I had no resilience. Um, I would have probably just taken more shots and, you know, it's, it's been a big rebuilding job, but I learned a valuable lesson that night. And despite feeling as bad as I did that night, and despite me probably making bad choices in the ring due to how I felt, I still did make them bad decisions. And me now, I'm a better fighter having gone through that experience because I've learned when to not make them bad decisions and when to, uh, to, to do certain things in the ring. So, you know, at the time, it was absolutely devastating. But looking back, and I think when I look back at the end of my career, I can say that was a defining night for me. That was the, the fight that propelled me or gave me the uh, know-how and the uh, experience to become world champion. Um, and I think that's, that's what's going to happen. 100% like I, I can only imagine obviously if you have like an upset stomach and then you get in a body shot it's probably the it probably feels 10 times worse do you know what I mean like at that moment in time and uh, I've spoken about this a few times obviously with a, a couple of different other boxes but when you I feel like there is too much pressure on that O nowadays as well like the that undefeated streak and, and things like that obviously like with Floyd being so successful and having 15-0 and making a billion dollars out of uh, out of that it's uh, there's obviously a lot more pressure and um and it doesn't i feel like that's that's one element where like say mma in the ufc is quite good as is you can come back from a a loss very quickly and sort of reestablish reestablish yourself where boxing and boxing fans probably aren't as as forgiving like 
when that O goes, it's sort of like, oh, well, there you go, it's done now sort of thing. But you've seen with like Anthony Joshua, for example, and bounce straight back and you can go on and, and still do like amazing things. And I think that's where most people learn. Obviously, it takes a special kind of person to learn whilst you're willing, like Floyd, but most people do have to make mistakes to then rectify them. And in obviously a boxing ring that does come unfortunately most of the time with losing if it is like a a, a mistake at that at high stakes if that makes sense yeah definitely I think uh, too much emphasis has been put on the O uh, Floyd Mayweather didn't help that um, uh, but fair play to him he's made his billion dollars yeah. and, uh, <laughs> um, you know we can only dream of making a billion dollars can't we but he's uh, he's done really well but I think boxing is getting back to that stage where People never ask me now. You know what? Someone asked me the other day, what's your boxing record? And I swear to God, I had to Google it. I don't know how, <laughs> I forgot how many fights I had. And the reason why is because nobody asked me how many fights I've had, ever. They then say, oh, what's your, rec- what's your record? No one says that to me, apart from once the other day. But what people want to know is, who, did you, who you boxed or who are you mm-hmm. fighting next? Because it's getting to the stage where now, People just want to see big fights, just want to see good fights. And that's where, like you said, the UFC is so good because you do come back from a fight straight into another big fight. And if you win, you get another big fight after that. And it's just like the the, the competition's so high. And it's really, really good um, to see to, to see that people, you know, aren't defined by one career loss and, and can come back and, and be in huge fights and one rectifier or, or two fight a guy that's better than the guy that beat him and beat them because you know stars make fights and you know it's horses for courses so <laughs> I, I think it's going to be going away especially with the zone now where they're going to be yeah. making massive fights and you know champions versus champions uh brits versus brits you know or like having big nights where there's usa fighters fighting uk fighters whether it's in USA or whether it's in England, wherever, I think it's going to be great. Um, it's going to develop the sport and probably eradicate that that idea that the O is so important as well. 100%. A, a good fight night for your division would actually be uh, Mexico versus England because there's a lot of Brits in, in the featherweight division and there's a lot of Mexicans in the M rankings as well. But I think another thing that's helping that is is coming off lockdown. Do you know what I mean? We've, we've had a year and a bit of obviously no boxing where some of the biggest fights probably should have been made and uh, obviously it fell through. Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua being the, the biggest example of that. So I think off the back of lockdown, people are probably getting a bit impatient with the big fights and people duck, duck and dive and dodge and whatever, politics, and they just want to see the best face the best. Talking about lockdown, that that fight that we've just alluded to, the, the, uh, the loss, was just before was the, the last fight before lockdown, wasn't it, for yourself? Do you think that um, helped or, or hindered you in, like, in terms of like mentally getting over that loss? Do you think the, the added time in between gave you more time to sort of um, comprehend what had happened, sort of get over it mentally? Or do you think it would, you would have preferred to just get out immediately afterwards and put it behind you and obviously that longed it out a bit? Yeah, I mean, for me, um, as a fighter, I wanted to rectify that that loss straight away. So I wanted to get back into camp once my ha- I broke my hand in that fight. Um, so I wanted to, after that, 
injury healed. I wanted to make that rematch straight away. And, you know, for one reason or another, it didn't ever happen. And now the, the Tinoco has, has retired, but I wanted to rectify that loss straight away. I wanted to have the immediate rematch. I was confident that I would have beat him, um, being, you know, 100%. But it didn't happen. But I did actually, I had a fight before lockdown. I fought in Italy um, in a six-rounder in a comeback. Um, and, you know, that went smoothly. That was good experience going abroad again. Um, and then I was meant to be going in straight into a big fight um, later on that year. So I think I boxed in Italy in the September. And then I was meant to have a big fight in uh, December in, um, I'm not sure where it was actually, but then I just got struck down with uh, a thyroid condition. So I suffered really badly with uh, a very rare thyroid condition. And that sort of put me out until the following March, where I was meant to fight in March. Um on the first time, the David, no, the second time, the David Avanasian and Josh Kelly fight was scheduled um, at the O2. And then a week before that got cancelled because of COVID. So then I had to wait from then all the way up until the 1st of August to fight Reese Bly. So um, in a way, you know, that, that time was well spent for me because, you know, I made the best of the bad situation and I trained very hard. And I improved on a lot of things, a lot of aspects. And then I was straight into a big fight, Reese Bellotti, and a, an all-British fight, a domestic dust-up, which everybody loved to see. And, um, you know, for me, that was a big fight. And I won that um, quite comfortably. And then straight into the Cesar Juarez fight, who really, on paper, and probably in reality, was probably the best fight that I've faced. Um, he had fight of the year with Anita Denaire um, a few years ago. Look, we've seen what Anita Denaire has done in recent times. He's now world champion. He's the oldest bantamweight or super bantamweight champion um, in history. So, you know, this was a good fight for me and uh, a fight that's put me in a great position now to kick on. 100%. Um, the, the fight with Reese Bellotti I wanted to ask about is, um, is interesting because obviously it was in fight camp, like I sort of mentioned before. And uh, it was in the matchroom headquarters, sort of back garden space. And you fought obviously in like in front of thousands of people, and now you're fighting in front of basically no one because there's no crowds available. And uh, and obviously the the fight afterwards as well, when you recaptured your your title, that was in front of no one. But being in like that garden, sort of like with Hogwarts, like it looks like behind you and all that stuff. What was that like? What was that like for you for yourself? Yeah, it was strange. It was a very uh, a different environment. For me, it wasn't even the settings on fight night. It was sort of the procedure all week where normally you're allowed in and out of the hotel. You just rock up fight week. You, um, you can go and go out and have some food from a restaurant or get your meal prep, whatever. It was so strict with all the sort of the quarantine. Uh, when you get to the hotel, you have to go straight to your room after your test. You can't leave your room until you've got a negative test um you can't um nip out to get some food yeah you're in lockdown in this hotel and you know you have to be very well prepared you have to bring your your microwave you have to bring your fridge you're full of uh, all the right foods that you need to eat you need to make sure that you don't forget anything because you can't just nip home and get it or you can't meet somebody at the door to drop it off and um you know that was probably the biggest difference for me going into that fight or oh, my last two fights, the, the procedure with quarantine and, and that fight weeks. But, you know, on the night, the only thing for me that was different was the lack of crowd. But I think 
it probably affected me less than it had most fighters. So like fighters that are really aggressive and fight for the crowd and, and um, you know, fight with the heart on the sleeve. It probably affected more them them more because you know they need that surge of energy from the crowd for me um i had to be quite calculated and pick my spots in both of them fights so it worked out quite well when i didn't get carried away um but you know i always prefer it with the crowd yeah. and you know uh, like i said when it when i was in Piro, that crowd gave me a big surge and i'm looking forward to being back uh, in front of a big crowd and performing to the best of my ability Hundred percent. I I think we just had the announcement yesterday or the day before that um full crowds were allowed back after after this nineteenth of July, I think. So everything should be back to normal. Um I think they were waiting for that for the Usyk Joshua announcement as well because they wanted to see if they could have capacity and so hopefully by the time you fight it'll be crowds back to normal and not a winning ways. During lockdown as well, you probably were able to train normally because you're a professional athlete, so you would have been like uh, just in the gym. Uh, as normal well the first lockdown in fact uh, it wasn't normal so when that fight got cancelled it was meant to be the 28th of march 2020 um so i think the 20th of march they locked the country down so i had to go back to chatteris and um from then until mid-june or end of june i had to stay in chatteris so for a good few months i was i was training at home so my dad Luckily, he wasn't my amateur coach, so he had no idea what, what we could do on pads. So we were struggling to to get everything we need. So at the start of lockdown, I made sure I had plenty of gym equipment um, ordered to the house. Um, my sponsors sorted me out with quite a few um, different bits of kit, which was handy. And I was on FaceTime in the morning doing pads on the patio um, with Dave. So he's giving us pointers, telling us what to do, what not to do. Um, so I'd like my mum holding the FaceTime uh, with Dave on it and me and my dad were smashing the pads and hitting the bag. Um, we had a bag put um, ordered to the house and we hung it on the side of the house and I was hitting the bag outside every morning, uh, waking the neighbours up. And then uh, like in the afternoon, I'd be doing um, uh, my normally would be treadmill runs, but I had to do them like in the local park. Um, so like a lot of outdoor running and then and like the strength conditioning sessions, I was on FaceTime with my uh, SNC coach Danny Wilson. So yeah, it was a it was a bit of a challenge, but I feel like I adapted so well, and in a way, I felt revitalized because I was doing what I love, which was training. But I wasn't deprived of being at home, which I, since I turned pro, um, I've always been away from home, so I can't spend a lot of time with my family, with my missus, etc. Um, my friends obviously in lockdown I didn't see my friends much at all but um, like I was at home and I was training and my family was there my missus was there I had all the home comforts that I needed I weren't you know um, wanting for anything so it kind of rejuvenated me it was like one long holiday for me even though I was still training I was in great shape I felt fit as a fiddle I was in a happy place and I think that sort of allowed me to uh, improve and I think I definitely did improve in that lockdown because like I said I wasn't up in Sheffield training hard and thinking oh I wish oh, my missus here I wish I had my family I'm missing home or I just like to see my friends etc so yeah in a way it was it was helpful um, 
and I did make the best of a bad situation. Was it was it hard not to like uh, sort of get carried away like eating wise and and sort of slip up nutrition wise? Like obviously a lot of people gained a lot of weight in lockdown. As a as some uh, from from what I've seen, you keep yourself obviously in the gym and and so you don't blow up in between fights and camps and things. But and like that particular situation was it a bit harder than usual? Yeah, it was. I think when the fight got cancelled um, and we went into lockdown, there was no way of knowing when we was going to come out or when we'd be able to fight. But I think I give myself five or six days off where I just sort of sat and felt sorry for myself and sat eating crisps on, in my pants in front of the TV, probably <laughs> all around my forehead and, um, you know, down my T-shirt. But then I sort of gathered my thoughts and I had to get my, my shit together. And, and Dave said to me, look, just stay on it because we don't know when we're going to come out. We don't know what fight's going to be available, but you're going to be first in line because you was on the first show that was cancelled. So just be ready. Just stay on it. Um, and there's no way of knowing when or where, but you've got to stay on it. And for me, that was hard um, because I like to have a goal in sight or a date in sight. But, you know, I trusted in Dave. He's never told me wrong before. Um, everything he said, he's going to do, he's done. And I believed in him, the fact that as soon as I'd, they had a show, then I'd be on it. So I trained my nuts off. I dieted really well. My nutritionist, Scott Robinson, was on board with me. He helped me so much during the lockdown. And, you know, Dave was a man of his word. He, he'd done everything he said he wanted to do, he was going to do. So the first fight televised on Sky Sports uh, after the pandemic was my fight. I opened the show at Fight Camp, uh, which, you know, was an honour to do. 100% and obviously like like you were saying it was best to keep keep ready because um, that's what Eddie was saying like anyone who was ready was going to get that fight sort of thing in the fight camps and he was just kept kept on telling people to stay ready stay ready and all the the IFL interviews and things uh, he was always just harping on about stay ready and you'll get your shot and obviously it paid off for yourself because you, you came you you won that fight and then you went on to beat uh, how do you pronounce his name Juarez far as yeah well, not only yeah. pay off in the blotty fight um because i was ready but also in that fight because i took that fight two weeks notice they rang and said look there's a slot do you want it are you going to be ready um you, you can fight this guy and i was like boom yeah i'm ready um that's a good fight and we took it with both hands and you know it put me in a great position now i didn't realize that was two weeks notice Is that, that's like that's fairly short notice even for for like normal standards that's really short notice isn't it yeah, very, very. That's fucking nuts, yeah. And then obviously now you you beat Juarez and uh, European is next. Um, I don't know if this is just me being silly, but I always thought that like British Commonwealth, then European and then international titles. So is this like European title, is it something that it's just because you wanted to get or is it because it's a good name on the record? Because in my mind, is international title like not a sort of higher ranking than a European? Um, it's It depends, because sometimes it sort of depends who you fight for it. Um, so it's a mixture of all them things where I do want the title because it's such a prestigious title. It is you know, if you win that European title, you are top 10 in the world. Um, mm. The governing bodies do rank you highly because you've got that title. Um, and also, I do want to fight this opponent because, you know, stylistically, it's going to be a good fight and... He is ranked very highly in all the organisations, so I think he's number six for the IBF. So, um, you know, beating him would 
would give me a great ranking with, with the IBF. So, but at the same time, I think internationals are probably just above British level. And then, and then I think the European is, is hard because, you know, European titles so prestigious, not anyone can just fight for them. Whereas like a lot, you see a lot of prospects coming through and they're fighting for international titles, but it doesn't really mean that they're ready for a world level. Um, right. And so you see a lot of fighters fight for international titles because sometimes that's the only title that's available and it's good experience, but they don't really fight anyone fantastic for it. And then they go back and fight for a British title after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a, a boxing in terms of politics wise is always a sticky one, isn't it? Is like the governor bodies, is that many belts kicking about? And you just like, it's hard to feel like, like when Loma was WBC and they put up to franchise, is that like, what does that mean? All of these things. And it's hard to sort of keep track of a sort of trajectory, if that makes sense. There's no real clear path anymore. It's just like, right, grab what you can. And like you were saying before, um, nobody asks about your record or, or probably even like titles. It's nice to say, but it's who did he beat for the title? It's, it's more about the fighters and uh, the names on your record. Is, is, is that more fair to say then? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, boxing is uh, a crazy business. I don't even call it a sport. I think amateur boxing is a sport and professional boxing is a, a business and it's a, it's a wild west. It's like a spaghetti western. There's so many twists and turns and uh, it's up and down, but you know it's unpredictable, and you know it's a hard, hard business to crack. But you know we're trying our best. Hundred percent. And uh, hopefully by the time this podcast goes out, that that fight will be um, announced, and obviously we'll all be cheering you on to, and hopefully you can you can bring home that European. Just before we wrap up, is it okay if I get your take on a few sort of divisions, a few fights that are coming up, and and get your thoughts and opinions? No I've, asked this, I've asked this to a few boxers, but it seems like not many professional boxers watch professional boxing. <laughs> so I don't know how clued up you'll be on all of these, but um, we'll start with your weight division. So Warrington Lara is probably going to be in September 25th, I think it is. Do you think it's revenge or repeat? September 4th, Headingley Stadium. Yes, sorry, that was it, yeah. yeah. 25th, uh, Josh Whitley's sick, my bad. That's right, yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's an interesting fight. Um it can go one or two ways, I think. I I could see it going either a complete whitewash for Warrington because, you know, he's rectified his mistakes. He's not taking Lara lightly. I feel like in that first fight, he sort of just waltzed in there and thought, oh, it's going to be a comfortable night. I've not boxed for a little while and um, I'll just get this guy out of the way and we'll be in some big unification fight. And it weren't the case, was it? So um, he could go in there and... Uh, and really be switched on, and he'll have to be. Um, and I could see him either, you know, stopping Lara because you know Lara has a lot of vulnerabilities. His feet are poor, um, but at the same time he can whack. So yeah, he could stop him. He could be in my points. But at the other side of the argument is that Lara has already beaten once. He might, um, you know, have his number. He might just think, you know, what well, I'm just going to do it again, and he might do it. So if I was going to pick one, I think. I'd, I'd pick Warrington to, to be really switched on and, and win that fight. But, you know, it's interesting. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Hopefully, obviously, um, Warrington, Warrington sort of rectifies his mistakes and it is that victory. Um, a division that you potentially could move into uh, going forward is, is lightweight uh, because uh, I think that is the next one up, isn't it, from featherweight? So No, there's a super feather in between. Uh, okay. But if lots of cake, then I could probably go to lightweight. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, to be fair, it's, for me, it's that's one of the more interesting divisions at the moment. It seems like that's where all like the sort of big money fights are because you've got Devin Haney, Ryan Garcia, Tiafima Lopez, Lomachenko, um, Tank Davis. Uh, if you were to pick like one that you think would be king of the hill in that scenario or like rank a couple of them, who would you say is like top of that pile? It's hard to say, isn't it? Because they're actually all so different. And for example, uh, Tiafimo Lopez has already beat Lomachenko, mm-hmm. but I'd still rank Lomachenko higher, even because I think he would beat him in a rematch. It's hard to like, it's so, it's so um, you know, it's just your opinion, isn't it? Or how you see things. But I think skill for skill, Lomachenko is the man. I think, you know, he's one of the best fighters I've ever seen in history. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Tank has got power that has been sent by the gods. I think power is he's, he's got that I call it death power. Um is like is if he hits you then he's just gonna switch your lights off. Um you know I've seen Devin Haney spar in the flesh. He's a masterful boxer he's very slick he's very good. Um Ryan Garcia he's got some power um, he's very fast, he's very flashy, he's got all the charisma and, and star power. Um, he's got the big backing of the zone. And then Tiafimo Lopez, he's the man that beat the man. Um, he's, you know, another one. He's completely explosive and, and very dynamic in, in the way he fights. And I really like his style. So for me, what a mix of fighters and what a division to be in. Um, I think. I'd probably rank Loma at the top, Tifimo second, Tank third, uh, Haney fourth, and Garcia fifth, if I had to. But like I said, it's all subjective. And and despite number one being beat by number two, it on different occasions, it, the, the other way, you know, it might happen different. They might have a 10, 10 fights and have five wins each. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I get you. I get you. It's, it is really interesting. I think, like, uh, obviously, mo- most of them fighters, bar Lomachenko, are fairly young as well. So I think there's there's enough fights to go around, and and hopefully we can see them fight each other a couple of times in like a little merry-go-round, which would be which would be very nice. Um, I see, like, obviously on your Instagram, you alluded to it there. You, w- w- when you were spar- uh, not sparring with, but when you went to go see uh, Devin Haney, um, was that in America? or Was that over here? That was at the wildcard gym in the LA. And the trainer is um, oh, Freddie Roach as well. And I'm guessing right. you probably, did you get a speed to him, pick his brains? Because he's a coaching legend as well. Yeah, not so much pick his brains, but I did speak to him. Um, I was sparring in his gym, aspired a couple of his fighters. Um, you know, the experience that he's got, you know, you have to respect him. He's done everything. He's trained some absolute legends like James Tony, Manny Pacquiao, people that you know you look up to from being a kid and you know uh, idolize these guys. And he's taught them, you know, probably a lot of what they know. And you know, he's got a wealth of experience. And when you go into them gyms, you see them good fighters, you see um, world class operators, and you sort of soak that experience up. and um, Every time you walk into the wild card, that happens. Hundred percent. Speaking about Manny Pacquiao, obviously he's in the welterweight division with Terence Crawford and Errol Spence. Um, out of them three, 
I, I want to say basically out of Spence and Crawford, but obviously respectfully we'll, we'll put money in there as well. But uh, who do you think is on top? Um, I think pound for pound, I think Crawford is the best. But I take into consideration that Crawford hasn't been at welterweight his whole career. He's moved up from lightweight to like welterweight to welterweight. Um, and I know he's carried his power up, he's carried his skills up, but I feel like he's not naturally as big as Errol Spence. Mm-hmm. And I think even though his skill might be better than Errol Spence, I don't know if he'll have enough to nullify Errol Spence's size and uh, presence in that ring. Um, and Pacquiao, you just don't know with him. I thought <laughs> I thought he was done years ago. Yeah. I thought Thurman would take care of him. And it was at the end of round one, Thurman was on on his ass. So, you know, what do I know? <laughs> Um, middleweight's probably the next division and I don't want to put too many names out here I just want to say who do you think if there is anyone could beat Canelo in that middleweight, super middleweight and apparently even light heavyweight now, fuck knows how that's going to happen but is there anybody that could beat Canelo? You know I think Canelo's a beast and I think he has so many good attributes and he uses them so well and he's got a wealth of experience that you know, he's learned along the way. He He's just a machine. But at the end of the day, he's been beat before. So he's not unbeatable. Mayweather beat him. And but there's it, not many Mayweathers in this world. <laughs> there's, not, there's not many Mayweathers. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying he might, he might never, ever get beat again. But he's been beat before, so it can happen. Uh, so you, if you was going to take a fight with Canelo... You can't look at him and say, oh, he's unbeatable or, or how am I ever going to win this fight? Because, you know, if you have that attitude, you're never going to win that fight. But I think he's a formidable opponent. He's, he's going to be very hard to beat. But, you know, they keep pushing these fighters to go up weights and up weights. And sooner or later, they will become unstuck because they're just physically not big enough to to, to win them fights. Um, but, I mean, in the middleweight and super middleweight division, there's some great fighters. Um, they're talking about him fighting Caleb Plant next. He's a very, very good fighter. I love watching Caleb Plant. I don't think he's quite good enough to beat Canelo, but I think he's a very good fighter. Um, in our own gym in Rotherham, uh, we've got Laurent Richards. He's British Commonwealth European champion. I think his next fight is going to be for another title. Um, so, you know, he's right in that mix to fight Canelo as well. So there's no reason why he can't get that fight. And he's got all the skills in the world. So, um, you know, it's all to play for and these big fights can be made. 100%. And uh, we'll finish off with the biggest to last is um, the heavyweights. Providing that Joshua and Fury both get through their fight. And uh, actually, that'll probably be the first question. Do you think both of them win? And then the second question would be, who do you think would win out of them too? Bearing in mind, you're in Mushrooms Camp, so uh, pick wisely. <laughs> no, yeah. you, need to, you need to come back and ask me when uh, when they're both come through the fights because, you know, Usyk is an hard fight for Joshua. Um, I do think he wins, but I think it's a very hard fight. Uh, and Wilder, is he's got bombs in either hand and he could probably knock any man in the world out at any given second. So, you know, nothing's a foregone conclusion. And... I don't want to jinx it. So you need to ask me when <laughs> the fights and, 
um, hopefully that fight can get made and get over the line. Hundred percent, yeah. Hopefully they do both come come through. I I said in the in the Bossy podcast, this was like maybe in September or November ish, that I I actually wanted Joshua to face Usyk before he faced Fury, just because I think it would be. Um, interesting to see how he would deal with like someone with such a high le- boxing IQ. Um, obviously, as Fury does as well. So hopefully that puts him in good stead for that fight. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I know obviously we overran a tiny bit and we were going a bit longer than expected, but um, you've been really gracious enough to, to not sort of uh, say anything or, or like clock, uh, do the little wrist tapping thing sort of motion. So um, I really appreciate that. Um, the way that I, I like to end each podcast is I ask every guest the same five questions in a quick fire fashion. Um, so if we could just rattle through these and then, and then I shall let you go and enjoy your evening. <laughs> so the first one would be, what are you most proud of? Um, most proud of... Oh, this isn't going to be quick fire questions because I'm having to think about these quite, <laughs> quite a lot. Um, most proud of, um, you know, making, making my family proud. What are you most looking forward to? Winning a world title. What is your biggest motivation? Uh, the uh, picturing myself lifting the world title. Yeah. Um, what is your definition of success? Um, achieving goals that you set out to do, no matter how big or small. Um, you know, a lot of people have very different goals, and for some, for for me, winning a world title was a massive goal. But for other people. You know, some someone might be struggling with depression or alcoholism, and having five days off the booze or getting off the sofa and going for a walk might be just as big a success as me winning that world title. So, you know, I think anybody that sets out a goal um, and achieves it is is successful. Hundred percent. And um, as it's the Coachcast podcast, how do you think your culture has affected you in your journey thus far? Um, it has made my journey harder because making weight's hard when there's a lot of chapatis flying around <laughs> and cooked paneer and uh, all the butter and everything is just soaking into my body. So that's how my culture is affected. Uh, yeah. Smashed it. Absolutely smashed it. Um, yeah, again, I-, I thank you for your time. Socials will be will be left in the link in the description. But again, uh, thank you so much. And is there anything that you want to say before we wrap up? No, thanks for your time and uh, look forward to, to listening to more interviews. Smashed it. Thank you very much, Jordan.